Okay, you're the host now. And it's recording. Good job. Okay. You guys are quite the team. There we go. <laughs> okay, this is different. I'm like on a much smaller thing here, but we're going to make it work. Okay, welcome everybody. The story begins. This is a very exciting chapter. This might be one of my favorite chapters. Might not be. <laughs> Depends on my mood. <laughs> but this is this is great stuff. Chapter thirty three, page three sixty nine. We're going to be only doing the first half today. There's a lot to talk about. Okay, so our topic today is joy. But just to put this chapter into context, because we've been on a long uh, journey, very specific journey since chapter 26. Since the beginning of chapter 26, we switched gears. And everything, the topic changed. Our discussion since chapter 26 was motivation. If I have motivation, I can rule over, dominate over my evil inclination. If I don't have motivation, I'm not as likely to win my evil inclination. The example we gave was two people wrestling. When you have two people wrestling, who wins the wrestle? Not necessarily the stronger person, the more motivated person. We have strengths, but that's not the only key to success. The, only, the key to success is, doesn't lie just in our strengths. It lies in our motivation. It lies in our inspiration. And there are three ways to get motivation. Three ways to motivate ourselves that we spoke about. The first way, which we discussed in chapter 26 to 28, 26, 27, 28, those three chapters, we discussed removing negative emotions, um, obstructing emotions, sadness, um, feelings of guilt, shame, that whole thing that we dealt with earlier. The second thing is, and all these things are interrelated. These things are not mutually exclusive of, of each other. The second thing that we need to develop motivation is sensitivity because it often happens that we're desensitized. And as much as we understand our Judaism, our heritage, as much as we appreciate it, we have a problem. We have we have difficulty emotionally connecting because we're desensitized. How do we develop that inner sensitivity? Right, the log is not catching on fire. How do we make that log more receptive? How do we become more receptive to the fire of the soul? That was chapter twenty nine um, and thirty. A little bit of thirty one. Chapter 31 and onward, 33 now, 32, 33, we discussed joy, simcha. Chapter 21 discussed simcha, joy. Chapter 33, our chapter right now, also discusses joy. We said joy is the root of love. Because if a person experiences joy, that means they're experiencing the soul. To be joyous means to make a paradigm shift from the body's perspective, the animal soul's perspective to the divine soul's perspective. And that's how we begin to view other people as a soul. We see people soul to soul and that improves our relationships. That was chapter 32. And now we're back to joy again. This chapter is going to discuss joy, but let's contrast it to the joy that we discussed in chapter 31. In other words, if we've discussed joy already, why are we discussing it again? The Alter Rebbe in Tanya in chapter 31 told us how to be happy. 
And he's going to tell us again how to be happy. Why the redundancy? So let's compare and contrast the two because it's two very different approaches. And I think this is very important. We're going to flip back to page, um, to chapter 31, page 355. In chapter 35, uh, 31, we were discussing the concept of transforming depressive feelings into bitter feelings. What's the difference between depression and bitterness? And we, oh, and I mean depression, I mean in the sin, literal sense of the word, not the clinical sense of the word. A feeling that li is literally depressive. They're both negative feelings, right? But one is hindering and one is motivating. And we said when we feel negative feelings, we can decide whether it's going to be hindering or, motiv hindering or motivating, whether it's depressing or whether it's going to propel us further. And what we ultimately said is despite the negative feelings we have, despite our failures, despite our imperfections, we still have what to rejoice over. We still have a soul. No matter how much baggage we have in life, there's a deeper part of us. That's what we said in chapter 30, uh, 31. Let's go all the way to the bottom of the page, at the bottom of 355. All the way in the bottom. And this ought to be your lifelong task. Done with great joy, the joy of the soul on its release from a quote-unquote disgraceful body, given all of the history, the negative history it has, returning to her father's house as in her youth, which happens during study, Torah study and worship. When we study Torah, when we pray, we escape the baggage that our bodies have. We escape the baggage of perhaps our inappropriate past, and we live in a higher paradigm, if at least for those few minutes that we're praying or studying Torah. The analogy that we gave was the prince returning back to the king. The prince was held captive in a place where it didn't belong. It's back. And the joy is just immense. The joy is overwhelming. That's the joy we experience when we pray or when we study Torah when we connect to God, when we're inspired. That's the joy reason? we just... Oh. Yeah, go for it. Is there a reason why it says her? Um, good question. Good question. Same reason why God is often referred to as a he. Um, it depends where, on the context where, of the relationship. Where is he seeing that? On, on the top of 356. So we say the, the soul's returning okay. to her father's house as in her youth. Um, okay, the simple, re the, the, the most simplest answer is in Hebrew, grammatically, just grammatically, uh, the word neshama, soul, is feminine. a feminine word. In English, the words we use are both feminine and masculine. But in Hebrew, every word has its own, um, not not tense. Its own uh, its own gender, if you will. Gender. Words have genders in Hebrew. In English, there's no such thing as we don't distinguish between genders. We're more progressive. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Erase that from the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and but in Hebrew, every word has its own gender. The word neshama is a female word, a feminine word. Uh, that's the simple answer. There is. So this is the joy that the soul experiences. It's, it's essentially an out-of-body experience. Okay. Let's contrast that to the joy we're about to discuss in chapter 33 in our chapter, which is page 369. I'm going to read from the bottom of page 369, and you'll notice a difference. It's very subtle, and I'm going to be honest and vulnerable here. I've never noticed it until I was preparing for this class. 
I, I learn new things every time. But here's what it says. The bottom in the, in the bold on page, three, the bottom of 369. Another method to find true joy in your soul. Now, we'll discuss what true joy means as opposed to just joy, regular joy. Circle that. We'll go back there in a second. Particularly on those specific occasions when your heart becomes desensitized, as we discussed earlier, and you see that it is in need of some cleansing and it needs the light of a joyous heart. So sometimes we feel eh, we feel blah, we don't feel inspired, right? Eh, blah, for lack of better words. And, or in Yiddish they say no. I mean a myriad of things. No, you know what? I don't know. You ask me how I'm feeling, no. We need some inspiration. Exactly. We, We need a better emoji. We need some inspiration. You need some, we need cleansing and we need the light of a joyous heart. Now, the divine soul doesn't need that, right? The divine soul is part and parcel with God. The divine soul always feels it. So if we need some cleansing, if we need some illumination, it's not referring to the divine soul. Who is it referring to? The animal soul. The animal soul. Right? So the difference between the joy we're about to discuss and the joy we discussed earlier in chapter 31 is the difference between an in-body experience and an out-of-body experience. The soul, the, the joy we discussed in chapter 31 is an out-of-body experience. It's a feeling, it's an inspiration, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, we, we actually even said in that chapter, don't let the joy of the soul get bogged down by the depression of the body, by the baggage that the body has. It's two different things, but over here, this joy is actually going to spill over into the animal soul itself as well. It's going to be an in-body experience. And that's why it says when you need some cleansing, that's referring to the animal soul, which needs the cleansing. It can't be referring to the divine soul. The divine soul is already clean. Make sense? I'll tell you a great story. There was a Hasidic personality named Reb Zalman Schneerson. Reb Zalman Schneerson was elderly. He was ill. I believe he was even in a wheelchair. He was not ambulatory. He wasn't able to walk. He was not able to partake in alcohol either, which Hasidim in Russia used to enjoy. And it was Simchas Torah. The joy of Simchas Torah is so incredible. And especially after you've learned Tanya, after you've studied what Simchas Torah is, uh, not just from a historical perspective, but from the eyes of Hasidus, Simchas Torah is such a profound relationship with Hashem. Coming off of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the entire Sukkot culminating with Simchas Torah. It's a very deep relationship with Hashem. It's an, it's an immense joy. It, the, the, the joy that we can experience on Simchas Torah can take us really out of our limits. And, and, and that's a whole discussion on a whole class on its own. But with Simchas Torah, right before the Hakafos, the Hakafot are when we dance with the Torah, we make the circuits, we go around with the Torah. And right before the Hakafot, they had a little forbringen, a little gathering, a little chassidah gathering. Because we need a, a little, um, we need a little oomph. Forbringen, after forbringen, you walk out inspired, excited. There's a little bit of an, an oomph. So that, that so, they have a little Fabrangan, and Zalman said, we need some joy. He didn't have any alcohol. He needed a boost. This is somebody in a wheelchair, un- non-ambulatory. 
he calls on one of the students. He was elderly. He calls on one of the younger students. He says, please get a Tanya. Student runs and gets a Tanya. He says, please open up to chapter 33 of Tanya and begin reading. The student opens up to chapter 33, our chapter, and reads. He reads one line of Tanya. Another method to find true joy in your soul, particularly when those specific occasions when your heart becomes desensitized, you see that it's in need of cleansing and in the light of a joyous heart. He reads this, these couple of lines. He says, stop. Now we can begin dancing. Rabbi Zalman comes out of his chair and starts dancing with immense joy. He didn't, we didn't even discuss yet how to get to that joy, but he knew how to get to that joy. And just by reading by the, those few lines, it motivated him. It wasn't an out-of-body experience. It was an in-body soul experience to the point that he was able to walk and dance with his own two feet. The reason why I bring that story is to illustrate the difference between the joy that we're going to experience afterward um, if we implement this chapter as opposed to chapter 31. It's the difference between an out-of-body experience and an in-body experience where the joy, you know, this is something we can take home with us. It's not. And we're going to see how um, we'll see it by the end of today's discussion. Hopefully we'll see how. Um, how that all clicks in. Okay. Questions, thoughts, comments, controversy. No, <laughs> we're good. Okay. Now the question is, so first of all, I just want to point out something. The first line, he says, true joy. Every word in Tanya is important. The al was very meticulous in his word choice. So the, he actually says said that he one time debated for a week. It was a week or two weeks. Should he put a letter vav here? Should he not put this letter vav here? Every word he chose was meticulous. Was meticulous. Every word is important. He doesn't say joy. He says true joy. What does true joy mean? True joy means I'm rejoicing over something true. <laughs> not over something false. There are things in life that do make us happy. There are other pleasures in the world besides what Tanya is going to feed to us. Um, there's a lot of things that make us happy. But it's not happiness over something true. It's not happy over something real, over something, uh, another definition of true, of truth, of honesty, something that's, that's stable. This joy can be stable, a stable part of our life because it's an in-body experience. Okay. What do we need to do to experience this joy? What does our chapter say? We need to meditate on something very specific. The Zohar says something interesting. The Hebrew word for simcha, the Hebrew word simcha, joy, shares the same letters as the word b'machshava, in thought. The two words are interrelated. Thought and joy are interrelated. Because our perspective on life impacts how we feel, which is kind of a fun, it's actually a fun, a uh, fundamental um, concept in Tanya and Hasidus in general, but specifically Tanya, how we feel is a product of how we think and what we think about. Our thoughts produce feelings. Our intent, so the more I think about something, the more I'm going to feel it. Right? The more... Uh, the more, you know, if I, if I were to tell, if, I, if God forbid, I were to convey bad news, how would you feel? Well, you should feel bad. If I didn't tell you about the bad news, the bad news is still there. But you wouldn't feel bad. Because what your feelings is just a product of what you know, of what you understand, right? 
So what we, how we view life is so instrumental and influential in what we feel. If we want to feel joy, we need to know how to look at life. And the Al-Tarebbe provides for us a meditation. This meditation is not at all new to us because we've discussed it earlier in chapter 20 and 21 and 22. And here's the meditation in short. What is God? We'll see how this relates to me. You know, sometimes we see God as a separate thing, but we'll talk about that. There is a profound difference between believing that there is one God and that God is one. Although you might think I just switched the order and I'm just playing mind game, uh, uh, word games here. But there actually is a profound difference. The, the novelty that Abraham brought to the world, the gift that Abraham shared with the world, the gift of monotheism, wasn't just that there was one God as opposed to two. He wasn't just getting into a numbers fight. That's not what he risked his life for. To say there is one God, okay, there's one God as opposed to two, three, or four. Okay, so polytheists believe in more gods. Move on, right? Let's agree to disagree. That's there is one God. But if I say it like this, God is one, Hashem Echad. What that means is God is relevant. That's what it translates into. God is one means that God is relevant. Why does that mean God is relevant? Because he's literally one with everything. Because he creates everything. And he's a part of everything. Exactly. Because he creates everything. Because he's the source of everything. He's a part of everything. How does that impact our understanding of our relationship? We're all of a sudden much closer to God than we think, than we thought. Because he's right here. He's intimately involved in every aspect of our existence. He's not a big bearded man in the sky throwing lightning bolts. Right? There were, they, there were people that believed God was, that there was only one God in the days of Abraham, perhaps. But they didn't believe he was relevant. Because he's in heaven. I, I mentioned this story last time when we were discussing, uh, I think on chapters 20, 21, but I'm going to say it again because I, I just love this story. When, when the Al-Tarebbe, the author of the Tanya, started disseminating the teachings of Hasidus, which focuses on the relevance of God in our lives, in our souls, and in the world at large. Um, the concepts he were teaching he was teaching were controversial in the mainstream Jewish world, um, especially given the PTSD that they had from uh, seventy years, a hundred years prior in history, with the false Messiah of Shabbat Tzvi. Spirituality was kind of, you know, let's stay away from that. <laughs> and, and it's a whole long story, but there was a lot of controversy, and. They ended up framing the Al-Tareb. They told the Russian government that the Al-Tareb supports Turkey. Look at his papers. He was sending money to Turkey. Israel happened to have been under the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> so he was supporting Israel. But they framed it as if he was supporting Turkey, which was the enemy. The Al-Tareb ended up in prison. And the Al-Tareb understood very well that he wasn't in prison because he was supporting Turkey. There was a heavenly decree. He was disseminating Hasidus before it was time, before the world was obviously ready. Now, Tadebbe was a little bit ahead of his time. He was informed by the Baal Shem Tov and his successor, the Magad of Mezrich, that once you started, now you got to go full force when you're out of here. The Tadebbe was released the 19th of Kislev, which is a big celebration every single year in the Chabad world. 
and in the Hasidic world at large. And one of the Hasidim of the Altar Rebbe was celebrating on the 19th of Kislev, a year later or perhaps several years later. And he says, do you know who was redeemed on the 19th of Kislev? He says, it wasn't the Altar Rebbe. The Altar Rebbe is a holy person who lives on a deeper paradigm, on a higher paradigm. Prison's not going to bother him too much. You know, he, he was praying before prison. He's praying in prison. It's all the same. He's, you know, he's a holy guy. You know who was redeemed? He says, God. Because before we had the teachings of Hasidicism, God was archaic. God was the beard, big bearded man in the heavens. And now God is omnipresent. Omnipresent or om- omnipotent? Which one? Omnipotent. Omnipotent. No, I think omnipresent. Omnipresent. Really? He was omnipotent. Now he's omnipresent. Ah, oh, there you go. Now, obviously, God didn't change. It's a, it's a question of our understanding, a question of our perspective. perspective. But God is much more relevant than we ever thought. Not because he's not just, it's not just that there's one God. God is one. One with our existence, one with the universe. The al Rebbe here gives us two analogies to understand this. One analogy is found on page 370. <clears throat> on the bottom. The separate, uh, uh, all the way on the bottom, the last paragraph. Bottom 370, the separate identity of the creations are literally voided in his presence, just like the components letters of speech and thought are voided in their pre-linguistic source. So God created the, creates constantly the world of speech. God said, let there be light, and light there was. And the same thing with everything in creation, it was created with speech, which is an analogy. It's not necessarily literal. But I'm going to give an analogy for the analogy to help us understand what we're trying to analyze. Um, you have $100, right? A lot of money, right? Nobody wants to just lose $100 out of their pockets. But what if you had a machine that prints money? What is the value of those $100? Just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper, right? There's more where that came from. The same thing is with speech. Words are very powerful once they leave. Before they've left, what are the value of words? Well, I could produce infinite words, right? So if the existence of creation comes from words, which all words are is ways of conveying, right? Just like words convey a message. Because if words have no meaning, you have some speakers that they just use sophisticated words that that are, the speech centers around, not around the message, but around their vocabulary. And that nobody can, nobody, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody's really could focus on what they're saying because they're distracted about on, on how they said it. Words are just a way of conveying something deeper. And to God, what are these words worth? when he has the ability to produce more. In other words, if creation comes from those words, what is the value of creation? Now, not to say that we're valueless because because we're just, but the point is we're part of his infinity. Our existence is part of his infinity. Every fabric of existence, as we know it, It could be the phone we're studying with. It could be the table we're studying on. It could be our own bodies. Everything is constantly created by him. It's like those words. And they're part of infinity. To give a more, um, what I find to be a more relatable analogy, which the Al-Tareb also gives on 371, the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun are so powerful. They really are. They seem independently powerful. You ever drive like on the freeway and it's a cloudy day, part, partially cloudy day, 
and there's like a little space between clouds and you could see the sun rays coming down. Nice oh, perfect that, photo right. opportunity, right? Perfect photo opportunity. What? We call that God's light. God's light, exactly. Perfect opportunity to share on Facebook. Um, those rays are powerful. That's from our perspective. But what about the sun's perspective? If you were to travel to the sun, you know what they say? <laughs> the first people that are going to make it to the sun are the elderly there because they're always cold. <laughs> and me. You know, and, and John, exactly. <laughs> the entire Florida together with John is going to make <laughs> And my mother. But, yeah, exactly. They're going to be the first ones to settle on the sun. If we were to travel to the sun's perspective, those rays are existent. But do you notice their power? No, because from the sun's perspective, they're not an independent being. From our perspective, the rays are an independent being, but from the sun's perspective, in which, which, which is producing the rays, those rays are not an independent being, it's part of the sun. And it's the same thing with, with God and creation. From our perspective, we're like those rays. We feel strong, we feel powerful, but the reality is, from God's perspective, we're part of a larger picture. Right? This is something that Hasidus um, elaborates on extensively. We elaborated it upon it a little bit in chapter 2021. The second section of Tanya. Tanya is comprised of five sections. The second section of Tanya elaborates on this in, great, in a great deal. Um, first of all, we're we all in the same boat here. Make sense? Yeah. Imagine meditating on this um, in the morning. You're about to pray, you're about to daven, or it's Shabbos, or you're about to daven. You have your sitter in front of you, and you begin to meditate, not just on the greatness of God, not just on his awesomeness, not just on his sovereignty as a king. But what we're meditating on here is his relevance. What makes God so relevant is the fact that everything is just a part of him, is the fact that he is literally one with everything, Hashem Echad. In Hasidic lingo, we refer to this as bittel. Bittel literally translates as nullified. But that's not a, because everything's nullified in his existence, just like those rays within the sun's existence. Nullified is not a good word for marketing. So I'm going to use a different word. You know, uh, I'm going to make a class, learn how to become nullified. Who's going to show up? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to change the word. Bitzel means being part of something larger than ourselves. So when a flame, a little candle, is held next to a big bonfire, it's nullified. But it doesn't lose its existence. It has, it has uh, developed a, a, a larger sense of existence because it became part of something bigger. The analogy that we've given in the past is that, you know, in, in, according in, in the laws of kosher, we can't mix meat and milk. If a drop of meat were to theoretically fall, if a drop of milk were to theoretically fall into a big meat stew, as long as there's 60 times the amount of meat as there is milk, it's kosher because it's insignificant. It's bottle, bittle. According to Jewish law, not only does that milk become insignificant, it actually becomes meat. It takes on a new identity. When we notice God, when we take time to meditate 
not only on God's greatness, but on God's relevance. We do that by, by realizing how we're really just a part of him because he's creating everything. Just like the rays are really just a part of that sun. We're part of a larger picture. And yes, while from our perspective, we do feel independent. It's kind of like a, a one-way mirror. <laughs> from our perspective, we do feel independent and God allows us that perspective because how else would we exist? How else would we make choices in life? But from God's perspective, which is also the divine soul's perspective, it's really all just a part of him. Which makes him ever so relevant. This is the meditation that the Altidevim urges us to think about, to develop joy. Why does this meditation, why is this meditation going to inspire us with joy? Or how? Any thoughts? How is this meditation meditating on how not only that there's one God, but God is one. He creates everything. Everything is an expression of him. He's ever so relevant because of that. Just like the rays of the sun coming from the sun. From our perspective, the rays are independent, but from the sun's perspective, it's just a part of the sun. Why does this make, um, how does this inspire us with joy? The answer is on the bottom of 371 and 372. Let's read from the bottom, 371. All the way on the bottom, the bolt. Now, when you will probe this non-dual idea extensively, when we think about this, if we were to take a minute and a half a day, which is a very short amount of time, but that's, that's a good amount of time because it's hard to think about something for a long time. <laughs> If we were to take a couple of moments a day and to think about this, your heart will be gladdened and your soul will rejoice even with joy and singing. Just like in the story that we said, Absalman got up and started dancing even though he was not ambulatory. With all your heart, soul, and might, I'm on 372, in this faith, for it is great. Why? Since it's literally closeness to God. This is true closeness to God. I don't just love a God who is great. How is that God lovable? <laughs> I don't just love a God who is benevolent, which God is benevolent. But I begin to see a God who is relevant. It's a closeness to God because I begin to realize that God is not just in heaven. He's right here on earth. Some of you might be familiar with the song, the children's song, Hashem is here, Hashem is there. So much depth packed into a children's song. I'm serious. The more we think about that, the more we feel closeness to God, a deep relationship. Where he's no longer just in heaven with a long beard throwing lightning bolts. He's a relevant part of our lives. This is something we really, we, the more we think about that, the more we, we, we will feel close to him, the more we'll become inspired. Now, this joy, this type of joy is so profound. There's actually a, it's really a paradigm shift in how we understand joy and the mechanics of joy. Because conventionally, we have um, BT and AT, right? Before Tanya, after Tanya. Before learning Tanya, how do I understand the concept of joy? 
I do what makes me happy. I do things to make me happy. The more I build my character, the more I build myself, the more joyous I'll be. The al it really provided, it really made a paradigm shift here. The more we get out of the way, the more joy we're going to feel. The more we feel that we're part of something larger, the more bitzel we have. You know, the more openness to something bigger than ourselves, the, the more joy we're going to have. We're going to feel a stronger relationship with God. I think this is very much in line with contemporary psychology. Very often, um, depressive feelings are more, um, are more vulnerable to depressive feelings or susceptible to them when we're focused on feeling ourselves. Um, it, it, you know, somebody who has, sometimes we, you know, getting out of ourselves, getting out of the way, not feeling ourselves. That's really the trick. Yeah, Noah. It's not all about, it's not right? all about me, right? It's not all about me. Exactly. It's it's not just about me. It's about my, it's really my purpose in existence. Rethinking our existence. You know, it's about me because God created me and he needs me. But who am I? I'm a messenger of him. And in fact, the whole world is just a part of him. I, I, you know, if, if you wanted to encapsulate the entire Tanya, not that I'm qualified to do this, but if I were to encapsulate the entire Tanya in one word, in one sentence, I would, it would go something like this. Get over yourself <laughs> and develop, but I'm not finished. Get over yourself, develop a deeper sense of self. And that's the same perspective we have at the world. There's a deeper sense of reality beyond what our eyes can tell us. We call that faith. And that deeper sense of reality is the creator of it, who is invested in that creation, in that existence, personally. He's so close to us. It's kind of just opening our eyes. Once we open our eyes to that, we'll experience that joy. And by the way, this joy that we're experiencing. Okay, but well, before I move on, any questions, thoughts? Comments? You were going to say so, You were going to say something about Noah. Okay, good, good call. What the the first? Before I get to Noah, let's take a look at Adam and Eve. Before they ate from the forbidden fruit, they were happy. Pretty much. They clearly lived a deeper life because they didn't, they weren't, they were totally naked and that was socially acceptable. There was no shame. Once they indulged, once they made life about them, they ate from the tree of knowledge. They became knowledgeable. They became self-aware. The knowledge that they got from that fruit was the knowledge of self-awareness. What's the first thing they did? They made clothing out of fig leaves. They were ashamed. Because they were ashamed. The only reason why they were ashamed is because they were self-aware. Before that, they didn't have self-awareness. They had a deeper life than that. Babies. Not ashamed. It's not shameful for a baby not to wear clothing. 
an infant. At some point, it's shouldn't you be wearing clothing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know when a when a eight month old has the sensory capabilities to rip off their own diaper. It's the most annoying thing and creates a mess. But you're proud of them. They've they've done something physical that they that they weren't able to do. But if your two-year-old rips off their diaper, it's annoying, it's dirty, and it's not necessarily appropriate. Or if a three or four-year-old does that, it might not be appropriate. Right? At some point, there's a line. I don't know where that line is. At some point, it's not appropriate to be exposed. And before that point, it's perfectly fine. Why is it okay for an infant to be exposed? Because there's no shame. Their Ignorance life is, is their bliss. Body. Ignorance is bliss. They're, so, they're not self-aware yet. They're not self-aware yet, exactly. Now, the world became self-aware through that sin, which led to corruption. And just 10 generations later by Noah, God said, okay, it's time. I have to start over. There's just too much corruption. People are so indulgent, are so self-centered. God decided he's going to wash the world, give it a good cleaning, a good scrub, purify it. What's the first thing Noah did when he came off the ark? Got drunk. He got drunk. He planted a vineyard, got drunk. What does it say he passed out drunk? He was naked. 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 He was trying to accomplish, he was trying to get to a state of mind to where Adam and Eve were before the sin. Where, let's get rid of this shame. He was trying to get out of himself. And while his goal was um, well-intended, his method of getting there was incorrect. It's a little self-indulgent, no? It, it, was, it wasn't the best method. And, and it ended up biting him, uh, biting him hard. Didn't end up working. If we want to get out of ourselves, we actually have to, we have to do it on our own. We can't rely on alcohol. We can't rely on external uh, stimuli. We have to realize that there's a deeper sense of self. I'm part of a deeper sense of reality beyond what my eyes tell me. Faith. And this leads to great joy. Because I've just discovered reality. And it's, it's an in-body experience. Because look what the Altadeba says on the next line. The second paragraph on 372 in the bowl. Developing this new perspective, which leads to joy. This is the whole purpose of man. And the reason for which he was created. This is why each and every one of us were created. It's also the reason for the creation of the world's upper and lower. This is the whole purpose of existence. To have this home for God in the lower world. The whole purpose is of existence is to make this world a place where God calls home. Where God is comfortable. That's the whole purpose of existence. It starts with feeling him in our minds and in our hearts. It starts with realizing his relevance here. The truth is we're not bringing God into this world. He's in this world. We're just noticing him more. He's already here. The question is how clouded our vision is. And how much we're going to open our eyes, how much we're able to open our eyes to see his, his relevance, his existence. And this makes him more comfortable. When, when he's more noticed, not noticed as a great figure in heaven, but noticed as a relevant uh, being in earth, this makes him more comfortable. And the Altadeva gives an analogy. Imagine you're called and you're told that the king, these analogies are difficult to understand because we don't really have kings anymore. But a famous dignitary celebrity, someone you've respected, somebody that's world-renowned, wants to stay in your home. You'd be delighted. 
They want to live in your home. They want to lodge there permanently. You'd feel so honored. And even though my home is rather simple, I'll do whatever it takes to get that place ready so that king is, or that dignitary, that celebrity is comfortable. God calls upon every one of us and says, I want to dwell in your world. I want to be part of your mind, your feelings. I want to be part of your dinner table. I want to be part of your bookshelves. I want to be part of your um, kitchen. That's the Jewish books on the shelf. That's the kosher food in the kitchen. That's the Shabbat dinners at our tables. God says, I want to be part of your world. I want, you, I want to be comfortable here. The more relevant we perceive him, the more motivated we are to make him comfortable because he's here anyways. Let's make him comfortable. Now, notice the analogy. It didn't say the king is inviting us to his palace, to his chambers, and wants us to be comfortable in his palace. That would be an out-of-body experience, right? That would be an analogy for an out-of-body experience. And that's actually what we said in chapter 31. The prince, the soul, she's coming back home, right? That's an out-of-body experience, an out-of-body experience of joy. Over here, we're saying the exact opposite. The king is coming home to us. This is a joy that's an in-body experience. It's a lot more real. It's, a lot, it's part of our lives. It's not just on Yom Kippur when we're excited and inspired. But it's, it, it's a real part of our lives. Okay, well, that's all I have to say. <laughs> it's my it's story and I'm sticking to it. It's different from when the king is in the field, right, Josh? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Should I turn yeah. off the recording here? Sure. All right.